from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. A lot of what they are told through the media is just completely in opposition to what they can see with their own eyes. This is not necessarily clever yeah, propaganda. Yeah, it's sort of like catfishing at the international level. You can, if you look closely at the picture, there's, you know, a license plate or a sign that suggests it's not the year or the, or the country that it says it is, for example. What a sick little game to be playing, but very natural for his circumstances. So I just think about all the kids. I'm Sarah Fenske. Nearly two weeks after its initial invasion, Russia continues to shell Ukrainian cities. Millions of people have been displaced. The future of Ukraine as an independent democracy is not clear. But one thing is, when it comes to the war for hearts and minds, Ukraine is doing a spectacular job of getting its message out to the world and combating Russia's attempts at spin and disinformation. Lara Zwaran isn't surprised by that. The Associate Professor of Communication and media at the University of Missouri-St. Louis was in Ukraine in 2015. She studied how Ukrainians use social media to get their message out. And she joins us today to tell us more. Lara Zwaran, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for giving me this platform to share what I know. Lara, so you are a professor here in St. Louis. That's why you're able to be here with us today. How did you get the chance to go to Ukraine and do this research? Umzel was very nice to support me with a grant. And I really started paying attention in 2014. The The invasion happening now in Ukraine is not new. It's a continuation of something that started eight years ago. And before that invasion, if I could give you about 30 seconds of history, sure. um, the Ukrainians had voted in their, their version of parliament that they wanted to be more closely allied with NATO and Western states. And they voted overwhelmingly that they wanted to do that. When the time came to sign on the dotted line, their president at the time, who was a big crony of Putin, did the exact opposite and signed that they wanted to be more allied with Russia. And the people took to the streets. They protested. And it wasn't anything violent to start. They just literally occupied the Maidan, which is the main square in the capital city of Kiev. And it ultimately did turn somewhat violent. But after some deaths, they were able to to persevere. Uh, Yanukovych fled to Moscow in an airplane and they quote unquote won. They toppled his government. They toppled his government. And not long after that, the Russians invaded Crimea and shortly after that, the eastern region of, of Donbass. So they've been kind of picking off parts of, of Ukraine piece by piece. Right. And, and waiting to see what, if any, reaction they're going to get and who's going to stand up to them, which really hasn't been too many people. Mm-hmm. So I, like some people, kind of watch that war or that Maidan protest on TV or on the computer. You could see live streams. You could watch what was going on. And it was horrifying and fascinating and it also suddenly dawned on me, this this is an example of what I study. This is a lot about messaging, because that was really when you first started to hear the phrase hybrid war, meaning what's happening is happening on the streets, but it's also happening via social media and communication among regular people, which as a professor of communication, that's my research interest, media effects, persuasion, messaging. 
So I applied for and got a grant through University of Missouri-St. Louis. Uh, I was originally supposed to go in the summer of 2014, but it was too dangerous. And so I went in the summer of 2015. And I just wanted to talk to people and interview people and survey people and find out what they were doing. One of the things that really inspired me uh, to start this project was an organization called Stop Fake. They are still in existence, stopfake.org. Um, they're now more professional, but they started, so they debunk Russian, largely Russian disinformation on a website, and they literally started as a group of uh, college students in a journalism department in, in a university in Kiev. So as somebody who teaches communication students at a university, I was just completely blown away that they had started this grassroots effort and, and had gotten to the point that they had. So I went and I interviewed the uh, founder of that organization, one of the founders. So and you were able to talk to them about how are you doing this? Yeah, not so much the students, but I did talk to the founder. and and. They're just doing it with hard work. They Google image search and, you know, a lot of time, a lot of times it's not even really that hard to disprove. They're, this is not necessarily clever yeah, propaganda. It's sort of like catfishing at the international level. You can, if you look closely at the picture, there's, you know, a license plate or a sign that suggests it's not the year or the, or the country that it says it is, for example. So, um so that was one of the organizations that uh, that I interviewed. I also spoke to journalists um, and and a number of other people, and I gave a survey and got some data from that too. And and so when you were doing the survey, that was more targeted at, at average citizens, right? I wasn't able to really get a true random sample, but it was a snowball sample, meaning I had a website where they could go to take the survey. I also had paper copies. I had it in English. I also had it in Ukrainian. And any time I could get somebody to listen, I said, who else can you get to take this survey? Bring it to your workplace, bring it to your roommates, and sort of trickled trickled across people that way. So these topics have been so hot in the U.S. now for quite some time. We're trying to figure out how to deal with fake news. And frankly, with all the resources this country has and our borders not being currently challenged, we can't even figure out how to do it. What were your takeaways? What are what are the, the Ukrainians, what have they figured out how to handle this here? Well, one thing I think is different between them and Americans is that they start with a healthy skepticism. One of the most moving things I did on that trip was to visit some soldiers who were in a hospital having come back from the front line of the conflict in the east. And they told me uh, 100% of Russian media is lies and 80% of Ukrainian media is lies. That's so they, they are said. very skeptical. They're very skeptical. And, and my results from the survey bore that out, that they... Uh, they, especially if it's stuff originating nationally, not internationally, they kind of know that a lot of it is not true. And and I spoke to a journalist for a station, a, a network that um, was trying very hard not to promote fake news. And she said that, that Russians would literally try to pay them off and say, hey, will you run the story? And if they said no, they said, will you run the story for this much? And wow. so it was, it, they, there's a very healthy skepticism. So I think coming at it from that perspective makes them a little bit more aware, more likely to take things with a grain of salt. Um, and I think also it's a lot of what they are told through the media 
is just completely in opposition to what they can see with their own eyes. Mm -hmm. Especially right now, Russia, by the minute, is being cut off from different media. The the people of Russia cannot access Facebook. They can't get on Twitter. Google just shut down Google Maps. Um, And so it's a front page article in the New York Times today that the Russians literally don't think that this war is going on unless they have interpersonal telephone or other kinds of contact like that through um, through from people from the outside. Putin has been so successful in just silencing any way they right. might be getting unfiltered right. information. And if they do get the accurate information and they do anything about it, they're liable to end up in, in jail. So it's, yeah. it's very scary. It's interesting. You were talking about some of the reactive efforts um, that Ukraine has done and, and this fact-checking type thing started by the students. That seems like a great example of that. Are they also doing proactive, when you were there in 2015, doing proactive efforts to get their message? out? No, that was something that I asked a lot about and was surprised, maybe not surprised, but unfortunately they weren't. Um, At the time, they just did not have the resources. Uh, There was nothing official going on at like the state level where they were actively into PR or uh, and, and I tried to tell them on that visit, like, do you realize that most people in America don't have any idea what Ukraine is. They don't have any association, good, bad, or indifferent. They yeah. just don't really know anything about it. Um, and there, there really wasn't any sort of an organized effort. Now, ironically, if you want to look for a silver lining in an absolutely horrible situation, Putin has handed that exposure to Ukraine. I cannot believe how prominent and well-known the Ukrainian flag, the Ukrainian effort, everything is, people are aware of it now um, like they never have been before. And and President Zelensky, um, he has become just almost this international superstar. And it's interesting when you say there wasn't necessarily a proactive effort when you were there in 2015. I have to think that changed because his messaging is is just amazing. I feel like you could teach an entire course on that. Absolutely. He he really has become a star. And and he was an actor, a, a TV star before he was president, that so maybe surely helps. maybe that's where he got some of it, but um he has been extremely effective in everything from what he's wearing, which I don't think so much as a stylistic choice as pragmatism, but he he comes across as really down in the trenches. I thought his uh his point about after the shelling uh, hit Baban Yar, the Holocaust memorial site, and he said, what is the point for 80 years of saying never again if when they shell this site, we don't do anything about it? I mean, he's really getting the sound bites, the look. He's he's kind of emerged as, as, like you said, a star or a hero. And the Ukrainians have been really good on all fronts in that regard. So uh, I think we all know what the Russian warship was told to do. And uh, words you can't say on the air. (laughs) But yes, they sent a real message. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Laura. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.
Welcome back. We are talking today about how Ukrainians have learned how to combat Russian misinformation. Um, it's a, something maybe people in the U.S. could learn from. It's also really helping them in the current dire moment they're in as they're able to shape the narrative, bring the world to their aid. My guest today is Lara Zwarin. She's an associate professor of communication and media at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And she's been sharing what she learned as she visited Ukraine in 2015 researching this very topic. We do want to mention, Laura will speak at Four Hands Brewing Company's International Women's Day event tomorrow, 6.30 to 9.30 is when that's going to be sort of the height of these activities where you can hear more about what's happening in Ukraine and support that. Although beginning at noon, the proceeds go to help Ukraine. It's really 6.30 to 9.30. That's the heart of this event. So Laura, we were talking about how in 2014, uh, the Ukrainians had gotten very good at, at reacting to things, at trying to stop some of this fake news coming out of Russia. Since then, they've gotten really good at shaping their own messaging. One example of that is how they're handling Russian soldiers who are captured in their country. What, what have you learned and seen about that? One of the things that the Ukrainian uh, military is doing is they're maintaining a website called 200rf.com, and they literally post pictures and videos of captured and killed Russian soldiers and the website is directed at parents and families in Russia so that if they can access it, they can look online for clues that they're, to see if, if their loved one, their son, is one of the people online. It's kind of grim, but I think it also makes a very powerful, undeniable message. Um, the, the people in Russia who are most likely to realize that they're being fleeced by their media are parents because a lot of them had sons in the military, were under the impression that they were doing training exercises, were not told until the very last minute where they were going. The soldiers themselves weren't even told. And so um, that's that's a very motivated populace. Uh, when when Before the invasion, when there was all the buildup of troops on the border, one of the things that the satellite photos showed was that there were a number of what they call mobile mortuaries, suggesting mm. that the Russians planned to destroy or take care of the dead bodies on site rather than shipping them back home in body bags. And that is a tactical decision to help perpetuate the idea that not very many Russians are dying and it's not even really a war. So you have to imagine that there are parents just sick with worry, not knowing where their children are, what happened to them, um, and desperate for truth. And so that that is a, a website that I think might may actually make some inroads on changing the narrative in Russia. That seems really smart. And they're not just focused on changing the narrative in Russia. They're also looking at Western countries that may, might be able to supply aid. How are they doing that? There's been a lot of interesting efforts. Um, one thing that's kind of gone viral recently is the movement to book an Airbnb in Ukraine. Obviously, you're not going to be staying there in the middle of a war, but by paying for the room, you can get money in the hands of Ukrainian people. Even even Ukrainians who are not in the heavy war zone part of the country, it's a big country, they are being affected by the inability to go to work, the lack of supplies, the refugees streaming through. So that's a really nice way to get money in the hands of people who, who no longer have a livelihood, a lot of the Airbnb hosts have been replying with personal messages of gratitude. 
And I think that really drives the that that effort because people like that personal reward of sort of knowing that they reached a real person. Yeah, and it's not just these real people on the ground, even though that's so important. I think all of us are responding to the fact that we're hearing kind of these unfiltered voices. The com- the country's PR professionals are also sort of putting their, their skills to work pro bono on this, trying to get the word out to journalists. How are they doing that? That's right. A group of uh, PR professionals who can't go into the office and work at their regular jobs anymore have banded together and created this organization where if you are a Western journalist and you sign up on their website, they will deliver to you electronically accurate, current information about the military efforts and the war efforts. They're really trying to to give people a chance, a, a place to get information that is, is accurate and vetted, and that way they're less likely to rely on other sources that are not. Boy, it also seems so smart. Do you think the roots of all of these efforts, these multi-prong efforts to tell their story to the world, um, lie within what happened there in 2014 and just the necessity of being like, yeah, we got to tell our country's story. As you said, a lot of people in the U.S. didn't even know where Ukraine was. I do think that's part of it. Um, Everybody internationally has been amazed by the Ukrainians' tenacity and, and spirit and unification during this effort. And I did see roots of that in 2014 and 2015, but I think there's another piece of it, which is that the the Maidan movement that started before the invasion was really about uh, social justice and, and civic society. And a lot of the people that I spoke to in 2015 who had participated in that movement were very galvanized by it as time moved on. They continued to volunteer. They continued to support their tr- their troops. I saw incredible things when I was there. For example, you could walk down the streets in a city park and they would have uh, camouflage netting that the soldiers needed. And if you wanted to just stop for a few moments, you could weave a few rows of the camouflage netting just as you went about your day. Wow. And there were people uh, making crafts and selling them to make money so that they could buy vegetables, dehydrate them, and send them to the troops because they, it was cold and they weren't getting enough food. So that um, mobilization and organization definitely came out of that that movement and seeing that they could you know, stand up to a much larger enemy and, and fight for what was really right. So, And I think that there's a powerful lesson there for the U.S. because we are so fractured now politically and the Ukrainians are showing that you can put that on, on hold and kind of unite against a common enemy. I mean, even like if you look at the COVID situation, mm-hmm. we did not unite around that. It just became more of the same polarization. So, But it doesn't have to be that way, as, as Ukraine is now demonstrating. Exactly. You know, this research is so interesting, Laura. And you have such a perspective on this. Something that we should mention and haven't mentioned yet is this isn't just academic for you. Your father grew up in Ukraine. He was born there. He didn't grow up there. Uh, he was born there in 1943. It was World War II. And in his part of the country, it was uh, very bad times, caught between the Nazis and the Russians. And his family fled um, from Russian troops as they invaded their village. His grandparents were were killed. If you if you talk to my relatives and you uh, go through old pictures or or a family tree. The whole story is like, oh, this is the one that got sent to Siberia. This is the one who went to the labor camp in Kazakhstan. This is the one who was burned alive in an attic while he was hiding, you know, from the Russian army. So these are real atrocities that have been going on for a long time. 
Uh, and I think it, it it's not just that he is Ukrainian, but he then spent the next seven years with his family making their way to Germany and living in displaced persons camps as, as refugees. So that part of it is really poignant for me, too. Um, there's this picture of my dad as a, a three-year-old or so in the German camps, and he's pretending to be a soldier, and he has a little twig, some some rem- he would find old army helmets and stuff around from the war and, and play with them as a little boy. And he would say, according to my aunt, that he was a, he was going to protect the whole camp, the whole displaced persons camp from the Russians. And what a sick little game to be playing, but very natural for his circumstances. So I just think about all the kids who, whether they're conscious or so young they're not even conscious of it, are going to be traumatized by what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're feeling, the stress from their parents mm-hmm. infiltrating their, their psyches. It's it's a bad situation. And for your dad, um, you know, that was a period of time when it wasn't so easy to stay in touch with family after people had to flee. You couldn't just get online and, and use these techniques people use today. Is, is your family still in contact with family over in Ukraine, or has that all been said? No, I did meet some of them on the on the 2015 trip. I do have people over there. A lot of my family's in the west western side of the country, so they are um, they're okay for now. Yeah, it's not good, but um, but my uh, sister in law's parents live closer to Kiev, and they are really stuck right now. So far, we have been able to communicate with them, but there's there's really nothing we can advise them to do for the time being, and it's very very difficult for her. So this is such a tough situation. In our final minute or so here, you mentioned earlier this is really a two-pronged war. There's the war happening online, the social media, the messaging. This seems clear from the Western perspective. Ukraine is winning this. That's not the only prong in this war. Correct. It's also a military operation. And as fun as it is to get your reply from the Airbnb host or um, joke about the Russian warship saying it, th- there's people dying and increasingly civilians. Um, so I, I do encourage listeners to continue to uh, to donate to any cause related to this that they would like to. Um, there's a huge effort right now to boycott companies from doing business in Ukraine. Many, many have closed stores and divested. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and McDonald's have not, that we can hit them in the pockets. We should not be buying Russian oil. That's another way that would quickly bring them to our attention. And um, the final thing is that the, the Ukraine needs planes. They need to be able to fight back. If NATO isn't going to protect the airspace for them and engage in it, then they need to make it so that they have weapons. That part's my opinion, but it's so an informed one. I hope I've proven. You have proven that today. <laughs> Lars Warren, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Lara is an associate professor of communication and media at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. One way to support Ukraine, that is that event at Four Hands Brewing Company. We have events on our website, stlonair.show. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. 
St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.